This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, ready to ramble. <laughs> so I usually use these occasions to do my thinking aloud. Being an extroverted thinker, I can't think until I start talking to people about things. So I'm never completely sure whether I'll pull it off. It's a warning, a health <laughs> warning. Um, what I want to talk about today is uh, a topic that has preoccupied me over many, many years. There's no doubt it probably preoccupies most people in one way or another. Uh, And that is uh, what we really know and how we really know it. My thinking has been um, particularly stimulated recently by a close reading, or re-reading, re-re-reading of Schopenhauer's uh, The World as Will and Representation. Um, probably many of you will not be that familiar with his work but he's an exceptionally important philosopher of the uh, uh, 19th century Uh, his great work The World as Will and Representation was written in uh, published in 1819 and uh, he's particularly significant because he's the first person we know of who called himself a Buddhist although initially he called himself a Buddhaist. You can see why that didn't last. Um, and uh, he was greatly inspired by the work of uh, uh, Immanuel Kant, without whom there probably could not be Buddhism in, 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 the, in the West. Um, but he took a critical approach to, to Kant in the great... Western tradition of the master critic, either teacher, pupil t- uh, criticizing the master, and uh, he uh, produced his own philosophical perspective, and which he considered to be uh, very close to Buddhism, because from the early years of the 18th century, Buddhism began to be known in translation, not very good translation, uh, and not very good accounts. But it did begin to be known. And uh, by the middle of the uh, 19th century, better translations from Pali and Sanskrit were appearing in German, French, and so on. And uh, Schopenhauer became convinced that his own philosophy, um, which of course he thought was absolutely right and the best possible, um, don't we all, um, the, the, the religion that came closest to it and that echoed it was Buddhism. He considered that he derived at his own conclusions independently of his contact with Buddhism. And there's, of course, a lot of scholarly ink spilt on whether that's the case or not. But uh, he came up with a, a, a perspective on human existence and human experience that does come very, very close to the the Buddha's uh, account, and has a great deal, I think, to offer modern Western Buddhists. Even if you don't read him directly, you'll probably find his influences there upon you, uh, unwittingly. 
So uh, I've just done a very close reading of the world as a ruling representation, so that's inevitably something of an influence on me. But I'm not going to try to provide a, an account of uh, Schopenhauer's philosophy. Uh, I want to strike out a little bit more on my own, so to speak, and more experientially from an experiential point of view. I've also been investigating, uh, again, uh, the Yogacara philosophy. Um, philosophy is not quite the right word for it. Perspective, uh, which in many ways does come very close to, to Schopenhauer's. Um, I've been completing a, a book that's compiled from lectures I've given on uh, uh, Yogacara Abhidharma, Yogacara psychology. So I've been revisiting that and I'm just admitting those are in the background, but I'm not going to be trying to give you either an account of Schopenhauer or an account of uh, Yogacara, although I probably will inevitably refer to both, although I'm not quite sure. Let's see what happens. So yes, what do we really know and how do we really know it? Of course... uh, probably it's fairly obvious that the two major ways we have of knowing are through the senses and through the intellect, through through reason, through the reasoned use of concepts. Those are the two major ways in which we know uh, in the most obvious sense. So I'm going to look at those first. Um, And probably that will occupy us today. So let's start with perception. Perception through the senses, especially the physical senses, uh, sight, yes, mine's not working very well, um, touch, smell, taste. Uh, in, in Buddhism, of course, we say there's a, a sixth sense, which is the mind sense, but we won't be referring to that so much now. We're dealing mainly with a more um, obvious uh, experiential perspective, phenomenological perspective. So we're sitting here, all of us, sitting here, having an experience uh, of ourselves in a world. I think we can conclude that we're all doing that. Um, And uh, it appears to us uh, ready-made, so to speak, in terms of a world out there. It appears to be out there and a self in here that is experiencing the world out there. There's the the focus for um, experience and the the, the centre of action upon the world. It's the the point at which we generate uh, action in the world outside us. The subject and object. That's the way our our world naturally uh, appears to us. Our experience naturally unfolds for us. This is what Schopenhauer, in a telling phrase, calls the original disposition of the mind. Uh, we don't have to try to do it. It just happens. It appears to us like that. Um, we could account for that, perhaps, you know, in evolutionary terms or whatever, but that's not my concern uh, today. I'm not concerned to account for it, I think. Uh, all I'm a, a, a concerned to do is to examine more closely uh, what that really is. Here I am. Uh, I have a definite feeling of myself. I can feel my body. I've got certain emotions, thoughts uh, going through the mind. And they seem to be belong to me. And there, out there, is uh, a world. 
of objects. You are among those objects, dear audience. And uh, you seem to belong to a single world, as a single uh, external uh, reality uh, which is consistent and uh, interrelated um, out there. Of course, for you, it's the other way around. Um, I'm part of the object to your subject. Um, that just presents itself like that, without us making any effort, without us even being aware of it. The original disposition of the mind. Of, 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 of uh, yes, of the mind. And, uh, of course, the world out there, and in a sense the world in here, uh, seems to be organised in terms of time. There's a flow of experience, and... Uh, Experience now seems to be related to experience in the past. Again, it's an original disposition. We don't have to do it. We don't have to think about it. It just is there. And there seems to be a future. There seems to be somewhere this is going to. to. Uh, you'll be relieved to hear. You won't have to sit here forever listening to me. It will end. It's going somewhere. And maybe I'll come to some sort of conclusion or not, as the case may be. But it seems to be arranged in terms of, of, of time. Uh, and again, it seems to be arranged in terms of time without us really thinking about it. Yes, of course, we put a, a clock out and we, uh, we time time. But uh, whether we time it or not, uh, and I spend quite a lot of time in India, um, it just flows on. Um, the external world, and we even think of the internal world to some extent like this, is arranged in terms of space. It exists out there spread out before us. There's a, a front of the uh, crowd and a back of the crowd. Always suspicious of the people at the back. Um, <laughs> and uh, again, it, it just naturally organises itself like that without us uh, really trying to arrange things. Sometimes, of course, we have perspectival uh, tricks and, and, and difficulties. But uh, even those, even those tricks and faults are, so to speak, against the background of an assumption of spatial distribution. So our experience is organised in terms of a, an inside and an outside. Uh, inside is interesting. Inside, we, we even locate subject internally. We use the metaphor of space. Uh, for where I am, and outside, uh, subject and object. And uh, subject um, and object are both organised in terms of, of time, and uh, uh, object is organised in terms of space. And in a certain sense, uh, in, um, subject is also organised in space, without putting too fine a point upon it. Quite naturally, the original disposition of the mind, unquestioned, uh, assumed. It's just like that. It's given to us. Uh, of course, we know, you know, from child development that um, uh, spatial and temporal um, and even, even subject-object are uh, developed. They don't immediately emerge. But they emerge quite naturally, um, unless there's some sort of brain damage or whatever. They just emerge. And we find ourselves in this situation, subject, observing, object, within the framework of space and time. But uh, 
when we begin to examine this, uh, we, we, we have to realize, and it doesn't take a lot of examination to realize, that uh, this does not give us an ultimate perspective on reality. Um, the world as we it appears to us in this original disposition of the mind, distributed uh, between subject and object in space and time, um, is uh, a, a construct. It's a way of representing the information that comes to us uh, uh, and uh, organising it so that it becomes intelligible to us and we can achieve our purposes within it. Um, it's what in uh, 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 Yogacara philosophy is called a vijñati. Vijñati is uh, a word that uh, translators struggle to find a, 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 an apt translation for. It, it literally means something like a message or uh, a piece of information that is given. In other words, it's not the original source. It's a, a sort of second-hand uh, simulacrum of it. It's what uh, Schopenhauer, I think, uh, tellingly, what you call Vorstellung in German, which is usually translated as representation, which I think is a good way of putting it. It's a representation. Let's look at that just a little sort of... Uh, Straightforwardly, of course, accepting the the framework of space and time and self and other, but uh, you know, light is hitting your faces and bouncing onto the rods and cones at the back of my eye through the lens, and then the optic nerve is delivering um, um <laughs> The psychologist can uh, explain it better than the neurologist. What is it? Neuro, neuro anyway, signals, um, <laughs> impulses to uh, some the visual cortex and so forth. And, uh, you know, that's the, the, uh, um, the wiring of it. And somehow there appears in my consciousness a picture of you lot out there. But... Uh, I'm not actually seeing what's out there. I'm seeing my representation of it. Uh, yeah, that's quite simple, really. And we never experience anything but our representations. Um, you know, there are many obvious um, illustrations of that. Um, my favourite one, being slightly deaf, is uh, a telephone uh, because apparently uh, a telephone delivers to you 20% of the audial um, content of a voice. and But then you construct from that, in your mind, the representation of the voice. In my case, it's probably about 15%, which is just about at the limits of what's possible. But it's amazing how I can construct out of that uh, a, a voice speaking to me, saying things that they never intended to say. Uh, uh, that's what happens. You represent to yourself uh, a, a, an intelligible world. You make the best sense you can out of the information that comes to you. Um, of course, we can make better or worse sense of it. 
So, for instance, it's, it's meaningful to say that I can mishear, because I'm slightly deaf, I, I mishear what somebody says. I can get very offended about what people didn't actually say. But, you know, I'm convinced that's what they said, because that's the way my, my brain reassembles it, to put it in those literalistic terms. Uh, so, in a way, you, you, you know, definitely there can be sort of accurate representations and mistaken representations. I'm not trying to suggest that uh, everything is simply made up. That is, as it were, uh, fairly obviously, it's meaningful to say that this is a, a, an accurate description of the way things are, and this is an inaccurate one. I'm not so concerned with that for the time being. I just want to um, take my hat off to it as I pass. Um, but the world that we see is a construction. This is what Schopenhauer says. This is what Yogacara argues. What we experience is our representation uh, of a world. It's not even that it's a representation to us who are a reality standing independent of the representation. We too are participants in the representation. We too are represented, if you see what I mean. Uh, so that the representation is the, the, the conjunction of the subject and the object appearing uh, co-relative uh, together. Can't have subject without object. Can't have object without subject. And uh, this is uh, basic Buddhism. This is right back to the, the 12 Nidanas, you remember? Uh, the, uh, um, the, the six sense spheres. The six sense spheres, this uh, Sadindriya. Uh, they are um, the, the junction of the representation, uh, sorry, the junction of the stimulus with the organ and the consciousness, creating the representation. The representation is the assembling of subject and object together in a, a single moment of, of awareness. So this has very far-reaching consequences. Uh, we're all the time assuming that we are sort of placed inside a box, which is reality, the real world, and that we are a real uh, independent self. And somehow these two have come together and we've been placed inside this box, which is uh, spatio-temporal and uh, which is real. Of course, we can make mistakes in relation to it, but uh, it's real and we are real, independent of the moment of perception. But uh, basic Buddhism, and particularly as worked out in, uh, in Yogacara and also uh, uh, by Schopenhauer, following on from the great Kant, um, show that this is not the case. Uh, this moment of perception is a construction. It's a representation of, of what? That's the great question. Of what? Uh, what is represented? Um, we know it's not reality itself. It's not what um, uh, Kant called the thing in itself. Ding an sich. Forgive my German accent. It's not the thing in itself. We never experience the thing in itself. 
uh, what we experience is our representation of it. Of course, even talking like that plays into the model of uh, a real subject and a real object, because we think, here am I, here is a real thing in itself, and here is my representation of it. Because that's the only way we can think. Because the original disposition of our mind is to think in those terms. But here we are right now, in this situation, uh, in a represented world. Represented in accordance with our um, psychophysical organism. We've got a particular sort of uh, um, neuronic... Is that the right word? Anyway... Neural, no, neural would be better, uh, mechanism and so forth. Uh, we've got eyes of a certain kind. If we were flies, good heavens, what would we see? Um, and so on. You can even see differences within the human uh, experience of, of ways of, uh, of um, arranging, representing to ourselves. We all pick out different things in our representation. Uh, but that's the situation. What we are experiencing right now is, as it were, a construction, uh, including the inner dimension of it. And uh, this has very far-reaching consequences for us. Um, and uh, what, what Schopenhauer said was that we need to wake up from this original disposition of the mind. We need to wake up to the fact that our experience is only representation. What does that mean? What does it mean to wake up to the fact that our experience is only representation? Uh, hmm. I don't really know uh, how, to, how to talk about it. I think this is where you, you could say it's uh, very strongly connected with uh, the idea of mindfulness. Uh, with mindfulness, you, you, as it were, withdraw from the uh, uh, naive construction of the world. And you try to experience the raw sensations as much as you possibly can without um, uh, too rapidly falling into the, their construction. Uh, the, the, the great um, uh, artist... Uh, 18th century artist William Blake uh, spoke about seeing through the eyes not with the eyes which I think is a very evocative phrase instead of if you see with the eyes you take the naive original disposition of the mind for granted you accept uh, what your senses deliver to you quite uncritically unexamined if you look through the eyes, you recognize that your eyes are merely representing to you an approximation to something which it's very difficult for us to talk about because we're trapped within this uh, uh, original disposition of the mind. So it's a question of stepping back from perception, recognizing that perception is a construction recognizing that construction is an approximation, uh, that that construction does not deliver us reality, it delivers us, to some extent, an approximation to reality at that straightforward level. The world is my representation.
which is the first words of uh, Schopenhauer's great work. The world is my representation. Uh, it's uh, what represents itself to me, which will be different from what represents itself to you. That's another question. The, the world itself, beyond that representation, we cannot know through the senses. Uh, the senses only deliver us uh, the, the, the representation. Okay, so far, so good. You're still with me if you... Yeah, nobody's looking too freaked out. Um, um, this is why, of course, uh, abnormal states of all kinds are so interesting if, you, if you're able to stay cool enough to be interested. Uh, drugs and uh, various sort of states, and sometimes meditation states, are really uh, interesting because they bring you to a point where you realise, uh, at least for a while, that it is all a construction. And uh, what you realise, uh, according to basic Buddhism, is that this uh, uh, construction um, flows in accordance with uh, conditions. That everything that appears, appears on the basis of conditions. And uh, itself provides the conditions for something else. But there is, so to speak... Uh, in the terms of perception, nothing behind the uh, the arising. Something arises, but there is no thing that arises. There's simply a flow of perceptual information, of internal and external uh, uh, representation, uh, without anything that stands independent of the moment of representation. This is the uh, basic um, uh, Buddhist position. This is not fancy philosophy. This, this is actual experience. If you look at your own experience, it must be like that. It cannot be in any other way. Because uh, you know that uh, at, uh, on the common sense level, your senses are delivering you second-hand information. They're delivering you vidnyakti. And from that, in uh, a, a, a very complex and clever way, uh, your uh, mind, to use that compendious term, is constructing a representation. It must be like that. And uh, for Schopenhauer, the recognition of what Kant was saying um, was him an awakening when you read Schopenhauer you, you cannot help but feel that he had something like an insight experience that he woke up from the original disposition of the mind this sort of naive assumption that the world is uh, solid out there and I am a fixed um, uh, perceiver in here it cannot be like that uh, we simply need to consult our experience. The first point I want to make, what our senses uh, deliver us is simply a representation. What we know through the senses are representations. Um, of course, sometimes those representations we can say are wrongly constructed because we bump into things or... Um, um, 
you know, burn ourselves or whatever. Do you see what I mean? When we misin- misinterpret uh, what we're saying is the representation provides uh, um, an inaccurate guide to behaviour uh, and to, to life. But uh, mostly they deliver more or less uh, a, um, a representation that works for us up to a certain point. But what we know through the senses is only representation. We do not know reality. We do not know the thing in itself. We do not know something that stands independent of the perceptual situation. <coughs> Got it? This is absolutely fundamental to, to, uh, to uh, the Buddhist perspective. Uh, and it's quite shaky, isn't it? It makes you shake if you really do connect with it. I remember my first experiences of that, of recognition of that. Um, I'm, I'm told I mustn't keep referring to LSD, but anyway. Um, and I won't talk about sheep, I promise. Um, oh, um, but yeah, I remember just sort of realising through uh, um, ingesting certain substances that uh, you know, what was represented to me uh, was uh, you know, completely convincing. I remember seeing a camel in the sky. Uh, you know, was it Hamlet? Uh, t- uh, um, is backed like a whale. Do you remember Polonius? And, um, anyway, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there was a camel in the sky, and it wasn't just a camel. It it, it had had a harness on it, and it looked round and it spat at me. Um, <laughs> it was absolutely there, and so on. Um, the representations uh, are seem to be real. They present themselves as real. But it doesn't take a lot of reflection, a lot of investigation to recognise that uh, they only have what what Buddhism would later call a relative reality. Um, They're not absolute. They don't stand independent of the experiencing moment. They simply arise independent on conditions, previous conditions flowing along, uh, and uh, pass away once the moment is gone. And they do not tell us um, anything about a reality beyond that experiencing moment. So much for the senses. There they are, they're junked. Uh, No, they're not. They're they're put in perspective. We know what they do for us. And we know what they don't do for us. Um, Of course, they're they're wonderful, they're remarkable, and uh, so fine, so sensitive. And they can be even gateways to, to, to something more. But we'll come on to that a bit later, probably tomorrow. Uh, what about intellect? What about thought? You know, here am I conceptualising a way about experience. Um, I don't know how intelligibly, uh, but I'm doing my best. Uh, acrobatically flinging concepts around, hoping that it makes some sort of meaning and helps us to unpack what's actually going on now, what am I doing? Um, what I'm doing is uh, uh, using what Schopenhauer very interestingly called representations of representations, uh, if you see what I mean. So I'm taking my experience and I'm generalizing portions of it. People, you lot. Um, so I'm uh, I'm taking that the unique particularity of every one of you and I'm subsuming it 
under a concept. Uh, the audience, my audience. Do you see what I mean? Uh, so I'm standing back from the particularity of my, uh, uh, my uh, perceptual uh, uh, experience, which is always unique and detailed and irreproducible. Every perceptual moment is totally unique. I'm stepping back from that and generalizing, uh, forming concepts from it. Uh, floors, ceilings, tables, chairs, talks, representations, concepts. Um, but they all refer ultimately, or initially rather, and ultimately, to perceptual experience. Concepts are drawn from my perceptual experience by uh, simplifying it, um, uh, providing a, uh, a natty handle to carry it around with. This is the way Schopenhauer talked about it. It, it was a way of making portable experience. Uh, it's a very nice way of putting it, isn't it? Uh, you know, I learn something uh, in a particular situation. and If I'm an animal, I've no way of porting that experience, uh, only by some vague instinctual memory, maybe. I can tell that this grass is really... Oh, I'm not going to talk about sheep. Um, uh, um, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, I, can I, I can't... There's no way I can sort of take that experience and make it into a generalisation and then a rule or principle that I can apply in other, other circumstances. Uh, but as a, a human being, we have the capacity to uh, break up the undifferentiated flow of perceptual experience into bite-sized munches, uh, which we can carry away with us and then form uh, ideas, uh, to form theories, form, concept, uh, form uh, maxims. You know, in this situation, I will do that. Uh, when Sabuti is giving a talk, I will listen very attentively. Um, etc. Uh, and then we can, you know, next time we can apply the same maxim in that situation. Do you see what I mean? So that, that uh, concepts are the way in which we learn from our experience and formulate for ourselves rules and maxims for the future. They're ways in which we make intelligible our experience. But they do it by stepping away from experience, abstracting from it, uh, breaking it up into uh, simplified um, um, concepts, representations, which, of course, automatically falsifies to some degree. Uh, because in stepping away from the unique particularity of the, the uh, ineffable flow of experience, you falsify it. Uh, you are not just people. I know. Uh, each of you is unique with your own unique individuality. But when I say people, I'm, I'm, I'm removing from that and uh, taking uh, you as a, a general heading, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> and of course, we know that all sorts of problems arise from that as well as uh, so much uh, useful information, so much useful um, theory and um, uh, yeah, rules and thoughts and so forth we, we uh, are able through this um, 
representation of representation to handle our world so efficiently. Uh, because of that, we're able to form a conception of time, of able to form a sense of I as existing in time uh, with a past from which I can learn uh, and transport uh, the past into the future. I've got an idea of the future, so I can form a plan for the future, uh, which is um, completely conceptual, if you see what I mean. It's not what actually is in the future. I don't have access to the future in this way. I have access to a conceptualized, uh, uh, simplified version of what the future could be, or I'd like it to be, or should be. So, um, uh, concepts um, can help us to handle our experience. They can help us to learn from our experience, um, but they don't deliver us reality. This is, this is really important, of course, from a Buddhist point of view. No amount of Buddhist philosophy amounts to enlightenment. Uh, in fact, the more Buddhist philosophy, the more distant uh, enlightenment, I'd suggest. Uh, risking the wrath of philosophers. Um, the, uh, the, the step away into concepts immediately removes us, well, removes us from the immediacy of experience into a simplified, abstracted, and therefore subtly, or not so subtly, falsified uh, image of reality. Uh, of, of, of an image of an image of reality, if you see what I mean. A representation of a representation. So um, it's very useful, extremely important, even in the Buddhist context, it's extremely important because through the use of, of concepts, for instance, I've been able, or I've been trying to direct you to a critical awareness of your own perception. I've been using concepts, whether skillfully or not, you'll have to say for yourselves, to try to get you to look at and examine critically your own perceptual experience. I couldn't have done that in any other way, perhaps, unless we were deeply attuned to each other and were able to use some other medium, which we'll come on to later. Um, I can only do it through concepts, because uh, they're the common medium we have for uh, bridging our different perceptual experiences. And because we occupy, to a greater or lesser extent, as speakers of English, whether our first, second or third language, as our first, second or third language, we share a common conceptual uh, representation in the English language. So I'm able to try, at least, to direct you to your experience in a, in a different way. When somebody instructs you in meditation, they're using concepts that are representations of representations to direct you to your immediate experience and to help you to orientate yourself in relation to it. The whole of Buddhist uh, theory, the whole of the Dharma, as expressed conceptually, uh, is an attempt to use representations of representations to bring you to the point of seeing directly uh, the nature of things, without concepts. So, I don't want to give concepts a bad name, especially as they're my stock in trade. Um, 
uh, concepts are exceptionally useful. And uh, they're, they're what, in a sense, you could say, separate us from the animals, our ability to use language and the concepts that underlie language, um, the ability to learn from our experience and to uh, formulate um, projects for the future. The, the decision, for instance, to change yourself only can be made by the use of concepts because you have to have an idea of yourself now and yourself in the future and then an idea of uh, activities that will generate a change. Do you see what I mean? So you have to use representations of representations in order to shift the, uh, the, the ground experience. Uh, and a lot of our uh, early work in the Buddha Dhamma is uh, very strongly conceptually um, mediated. As one's experience deepens, uh, uh, and there's more of another way of experiencing, which we'll come on to later, uh, that becomes less and less necessary. Uh, but even even then, some degree of, of representation of representation is essential if we're to keep ourselves facing the right direction and to make the uh, uh, <coughs> right decisions about things. I think it's very important to understand these two primary modes of understanding that we have two primary modes of knowledge that we have. Um, to recognise them as extremely useful uh, and to recognise them as limited. Uh, to recognise what they can do for us and to recognise what they can't do for us. Uh, to recognise how to use them and how not to use them. For instance, concepts uh, don't think that a correct or appearing apparently correct conceptual uh, understanding of things is reality. The fact that you can say everything is impermanent does not, I'm sorry to say, mean you are enlightened. Far less mean. Um, it's a concept. It's a conceptual construction. Everything. Where, I've never experienced everything, have you? Um, um, impermanent uh, but in a way how can you experience something as impermanent as everything is impermanent um, you can't experience it because you never experience everything uh, you never experience the beginning of time you never experience the end of time so you can never experience everything as impermanent you see what I mean you can experience particular things uh, or particular representations as uh, impermanent and coming and going so uh, it must be a, a form of words for us, but a form of words that directs us to look at the experience that's taking place uh, right now um, in, our, uh, in our perceptual mode uh, and to recognise that it's uh, evanescent, that it's coming and going, that it has no fixed reality. In other words, the, the, the idea that everything is impermanent is another way of saying everything is representation. That's the way the Yogacara put it. Uh, because if everything is representation, it can't have any abiding reality. Got me? It can't stand independent of the, the, the moment as uh, ultimate and real. Uh, and if it's, it can't stand independent of the moment as ultimate and real, it must be uh, ever-changing. So... Uh, Yes, these, these high phrases, these, these deep uh, conceptual uh, understandings that Buddhism gives us uh, aren't themselves as conceptual 
formulae, reality. They direct us to reality. They direct us back to our immediate perceptual experience. Um, and uh, they help us to understand the nature of that direct uh, perceptual experience. But, um, yes, so, so I'm not going to go on to another topic because another one begins to arise at this point. What, what I've, I've aimed to do today is to give you a, uh, a way of uh, reflecting upon your perceptual experience, what appears through your senses to you, and to recognise that what is appearing is appearance, a phenomenon, uh, which, uh, you, know, you know, comes from, or may know, comes from a Greek word, uh, uh, phenomenon, which means to appear, uh, to arise in front of you. Uh, but uh, there is no noumenon. There's nothing behind the phenomenon. There's no thing in itself. At least we can't experience one. If there is one, it's simply a concept. Uh, we can't know it, at least through perception. So I invite you all to reflect on this over the next 24 hours. And if you manage to get through the day and find a way of getting back here tomorrow, in what, what we laughingly call tomorrow in our conceptual way, uh, um, just sort of examine from time to time. Just stop and sort of use the representation of representation, that this is a representation, and uh, sort of stay with that. But what's happening, what's appearing, is a representation. It's a construction. It's not wrong or bad or naughty or anything like that. It's just the original disposition of the mind. It's what's given to us uh, by whatever um, etiology we want to appeal to, whether it's evolution or uh, rebirth or whatever it is. Uh, it's there. It's just the way things appear for us. So stop and reflect on that. Even more important, because I think we don't really sufficiently reflect upon reflection. Uh, reflect upon your use of concepts, if you can. If you can, it's quite difficult to do because, of course, you get caught up in, am I thinking or am I uh, in experiencing? Or am I thinking about thinking about thinking? And so on. That way lies madness. Um, uh, but just try to sort of stand back a bit. Of course, it's going to be a reflection. That is a conceptual reflection. But just sort of try to weigh and recognise what concepts are, what words are. Useful, but limited. Uh, words do not deliver reality. Concepts do not deliver reality. In, in the Buddhist uh, uh, original um, phrase, um, Reality is atarka vacharo, avacharo, atarka avacharo, atarka vacharo. Uh, tarka is the, uh, tarka shastra is the modern Hindi word for logic. Um, so tarka is the, um, the use of reason. So the, the Buddha says that uh, realities are not, uh, 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 it, it's not, within the reach of, avacara means within the reach of, reason. 
Uh, that is, our concepts do not deliver us reality. They're extremely useful. Don't stop using them, please, otherwise you won't be here tomorrow. Uh, and you certainly won't be un- able to understand a word I'm saying. Uh, they're extremely useful and they're what brought us to a Buddhist centre they're what enable us to engage with the Buddhist centre and learn the Dhamma they're what enable us to learn um, uh, meditation we couldn't do it without concepts but they do not deliver us reality Uh, they can help us to uh, orient ourselves within reality so that we see reality directly beyond uh, uh, words and concepts beyond even the perceptual situation but that is another story so I've got ten minutes and I'm told that I always talk too much um, uh, so let's see if um, we've got ten minutes uh, any questions that arise it's always terrifying this moment when talking about this sort of topic Term like um, everything is constantly changing. Yeah. Is that a concept or is it a description? Um, well, what is the difference between a description and a, and a concept? Or rather, a description is a, is a particular use of concepts. Well, to me, that's a description of reality. Like if I say the leaf is green, that's not a concept, is it? It's a description. Well, the, 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 what, what you've given as a description uses concepts. Like a leaf, a leaf is a concept. Yes, in your use. Yeah? Uh, of course, there are, there are um, two levels, so to speak, of conceptual use. There is, you're quite right, uh, the, the, the use of, of concepts or of representations in a direct descriptive way. Uh, and then there is the use of concepts in a more complex and... Uh, um, what can one say a, a, a more abstracted way so concepts stretch the use of concepts stretches from pure description because the relief is not, is not green if you see what I mean it's something more than that something much more than that and it's simply a, your, your way of describing the representation that appears to you so you are right it is a, 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 a description but that description takes place using concepts then there's a second order of, of, of description, oh, sorry, of, of representation uh, through concepts, uh, which is where you start to talk about um, the nature of, of, of trees in general, uh, the, uh, the nature of leaves in general, the nature of colour, um, the nature of nature, if you see what I mean. You get more and more abstracted. And this can achieve a, such a high degree of abstraction that... Um, you know, there's very little apparent perceptual content to it, uh, which is, of course, where you know higher orders of, of physics and mathematics and, and so forth go on, and where so much philosophy disappears up. Uh, I won't say where. Um, um, it's a very interesting. Uh, Schopenhauer's intensely critical of uh, of philosophy, of academic philosophy and professional philosophy, because he believed that it had failed to realise that concepts did not deliver reality uh, and that it failed to realise that concepts always start with description. It's good that you, you, you brought us to that. And they almost must end up applied to perceptual experience. If concepts can't be applied back to experience they're pretty useless. 
Do you see what I mean? They derive from perceptual experience, but then they must refer back to it. Unless, you know, you, you want a good job in a philosophy department. <laughs> well, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You said that Schopenhauer was the first person to brought up Buddhism. As far as I'm aware, yeah. So, so it, was that because the concept of Buddhism uh, you know, wasn't available in the East? It, it just sort of Came when, when, when Buddhism came to the West. Yes, yeah, it's ne- never called Buddhists in the East have never called themselves Buddhists until uh, until they encountered, uh, you know, colonial academics. Um, and boy, was that an encounter! Um, but they, they just simply called it the Dharma or the Dhamma. <coughs> Even today, in, in um, uh, modern Indian languages, uh, in, in uh, Dharma is simply religion. Do you see what I mean? And, and, and even Hinduism is a modern construction. There was no such thing as Hinduism until relatively recently. So yes, it, it's, a, it's, it's a modern uh, conceptual construction. Um, we're very just, by the way, it reminded me that uh, Kant famous, uh, sorry, Schopenhauer famously had a bust of Kant on his desk. And uh, in the 1850s, he sent to Paris, to an antique shop in Paris, for a Buddha statue. Which he placed on his uh, in a place of honor in his in his study. Uh, so he sort of consciously thought of Buddhism as a as a, as a, a, a you know a separate category of religion, because of course in in uh, in Europe there was an awareness of, of Judaism and of uh, Islam, so people were were conscious of different isms. We won't speak of Catholicism and Reform. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm, I seem to deal with words. I'm sorry? Um, I deal with words kind of as my main thing. <coughs> indeed. I'm very yeah. concerned about them. Yes, indeed. Because they are fixed, um, they're tight, whereas shape and colour and music isn't. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of two levels to it. One is the use <coughs> of the word for conceptualising, but the other is the um, permanence. Even is the what? Sorry, the. the that it's not transitory. Um, I'm kind of thinking about even as you talk spontaneously, you're being recorded. Yeah. We write things down. Mm. Um, if you create a work of art with shape and colour, though, it can become fixed unless it's the, um, you know, the auto-destructive kind. Mm. Um, the music, even in tradition, the music that you've been listening to gets fixed. It's not just notes pouring out. I'm not quite sure of the point you're making. What, what's I'm the... making a point about the division yeah. between the different modes of expression yeah. and the fact that we, in this society, are fixing things, whether we're using words, whether we're using um, visual arts or, or music, we're fixing things. And the point I'm making is, are you going to give us anything that might help us get this reconciled with transience and... I, I sincerely hope so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I watch this space. <laughs> See what happens. Um, but I'm right in raising those, those things. Yes, I, I don't think it... But by the way, I don't think it's only our culture that fixes things. I think it's a human function because it's part of the usefulness of words that they do transport, if you see what I mean. They, 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 they uh, make our experience... Um, Manageable. Yeah. Yeah. 
but it's a human tendency, uh, which is part of the original disposition, to uh, uh, try to fix things so that we can uh, rely upon them, if you sort of mean. I don't know where to go. I kind of say that words are definitely, the meaning of words is definitely not fixed and changes over the course of, course, of time. So, of course, yeah. And our interpretation of images or music changes over time as well. So, yeah. Um, Everything changes. Sure I agree. Yeah, but, but we it, think it does. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's a conception, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, how do we know what's real if um, so you're talking about. You know, even in deep meditations or with your experience or in dreams and things like that, um, it, you know, that sort of perceptions of reality changes. Yeah. How do you know even in, in the sort of a deep meditation or when you think of like, experiencing something more real here, how do you know that that's real? So how do you, how do you ever know? Yes, well, I suppose then one has to, to, to question the notion of real, if you see what I mean. Uh, insofar as there's, there's a subject and object, uh, there is some degree of representation taking place. But that uh, uh, degree of representation may be uh, more uh, fine and subtle or less so, to jump over large issues quickly. Um, but uh, uh, the, 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 from the Buddhist point of view, it's not a question of experiencing reality uh, in, in, in the simple terms, as it were, of the... the uh, the framework of that metaphor, as if reality is there and I am here experiencing it, as if reality is an object. But, uh, well, from the Buddhist point of view, reality is in the first place the recognition of the uh, relative nature of a perceptual representation and conceptual representation of representation. You see, in the first place, it's that recognition of relativity. I think this is probably more what, what was being got at by uh, the questioner at the back. It's not so much to do with the change of it, it's to do with recognising the nature of it. So uh, uh, in the first place, uh, you come closer to reality when you recognise the relative nature of your primary uh, uh, modes of experience, according, uh, of knowledge, according to the original disposition of the mind. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm that the original disposition of the mind presents to you the world as uh, in here and out there and in space and time. Uh, and it, uh, so when you recognise that that is a representation and not a, an ultimate reality, that is already reality, closer to reality. When you recognise that your concepts are merely representations of representation and do it more or less well... Uh, but are in the end only representations of representation. That um, is closer to reality. So um, uh, there's a, a very famous phrase uh, very early in uh, uh, one of the earliest portions of the Pali Canon, uh, part of the Pali Canon that said scholars say that Pali is, um, you know, shows it to be sort of very early on and close to the Buddha himself. He's asked something like, um, you know, how is it that you, you arahants, go around saying, you know, I do this, I want my breakfast, and I'm going to bed now? Uh, how can you do that when you know you've broken through uh, the belief in Atman? And he said, Well, you do it, but you recognise that it's a conventional expression. You do it for the purposes of communication, but you don't attach any ultimate meaning to it. That's what we mean. 
I think this is the point, really. So that you, you, you recognize the relative nature of, uh, of, uh, um, perceptual, uh, representation. You re- recognize it as representation. And you recognize the, uh, even more relative nature of conceptual representation. Doesn't mean that either of them are wrong, or bad, or naughty. It just means they do not deliver you reality. Uh, you get closer to reality when you recognise that they don't. What you then do, we'll see if we can find a way of getting to tomorrow. But fortunately the bell has saved me <laughs> from further entanglement in my own thoughts. Um, but that's what I'd like you to just try to sort of reflect a bit on this. It's quite difficult to do, but just try to sort of re- reflect on what's going on when you, when you look when you hear, we'll do some exercises in the first, in the meditation before uh, the talk, whatever it is, the ramble tomorrow, which will look a bit at, at what's going on in a perceptual situation, see if we can unpack it a bit. But try a little bit during the day, if you can. What's going on in perception? And if you can, just have a little bit of a think about your use of concepts uh, and what's going on when you use them. And probably many of you do this uh, naturally, but... Uh, or even, you know, being trained a bit, if you've been trained in philosophy or psychology or even in art, you'll have done something of that uh, in many fields. But try to do it a little bit more over these days and maybe that will play out a bit in our work tomorrow. Good. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.